next time together of Matters of the Heart, the series that we're drawing to the end of as we're talking about just, yeah, implications of everything that we've covered so far and if God really has created us inner person and outer person, those inseparably, inseparably interdependent until death, our bodies to go to the grave, our bodies to be raised for in Christ, our souls to depart and be with the Lord on that last day to be reunited to our bodies, glorified, to be in the presence of God forever. If he has created us, both inner person, outer person, and he wants the heart, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation of the heart, and someday even of the resurrection of the body, then what are the implications of these things? What are the implications of all that we've talked about to this point? And this week we're gonna focus on parenting. We've talked about implications for singleness, we've talked about implications for marriage, and now we're gonna talk about implications for parenting. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump in. Well, Father, we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We know your works, the glory of those works, the greatness of those works. And so like David in Psalm 145, we want to extol you, our God and King, to bless your name forever and ever, every day, to bless you and to praise your name because great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. And your greatness is unsearchable and that one generation really should commend your works to the next, shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, we will meditate and speak about and declare and communicate to the next generation that they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, that they will declare your greatness, that they would pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And so Father, we love that, that your goodness is abundant and it is known and it is famous. And so we wanna pour forth those words because you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are good to all. And your mercy is over all that you have made. And so strengthen us, we pray, Father, to convey those truths to our children. To speak of your greatness to the next generation. That they would come by your grace to know you and to love you and to fear you and to delight in you and to trust you. And to speak of you to generations to come. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, parenting really is hard work, you know, not because of the interrupted sleep merely or the long days or the resource consumption. You know, those of you who, if you've had kids or have kids or you know, you're expecting kids, just know that the day that child enters the world, they will take everything, eventually. They will take your energy, they will take your emotion, they will take your resources, they will, and it's worth it, but it's hard. And throughout the story of scripture we see the Lord really does call his people often to do things that they're really not capable of doing, not on their own, not to the degree that he wants, and I think parenting is one of those. It's a hard work, it's a spiritual work, it's a serious work. Yeah, bringing Israel out of Egypt, where God says to Moses, hey, go, go, go back to Egypt, leave my people out. I think Moses understood the gravity of what he was being asked to do, that, okay, that's an impossible task. Who am I? What power do I have? What am I gonna be able to do to, to bring out a couple million people from Egypt out from under the hands of Pharaoh? Of course, God never intended him to be the decisive factor. He never intended Moses to be the big difference, just the instrument. Just a mouthpiece. As he went on to say, it'll be about my great power that I do this work. That all the world would know that I'm the Lord. Yes, surviving 40 years in the wilderness where there's no food or water. How are they gonna do that? Conquering the promised land. Taking it from nations, as God said, that are far greater than you. Far mightier than you. And it won't be because of your greatness of power and your wisdom that you're gonna do this but I'm gonna go before you. I'm gonna drive out those nations before you. I'm gonna accomplish those purposes and perhaps most of all, make disciples of Christ from all the nations. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. I mean, we hear that and we're meant to go, okay, that's not possible if we understand what he's saying. Which is why it's so important what he says before, all authority has been on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And then at the end of the statement, it's, and with this I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So his command to go make disciples is bookended by all authority has been given to me and I'll be with you. So he's always calling us to do things that we can't do in our own strength. And in no way is he being cruel. Rather, I think he's teaching us one of the most vital truths necessary for our good, and that's true faith, true dependence on God, true leaning on his strength, true reliance upon his spirit's power, not ourselves. Just even when Peter is in the boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus is walking on the water and he says, if it's you, Lord, command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Just that statement. Like, come, walk on the water. Like he's inviting him to do something that there's no way Peter can pull that off without the power of God. And so we were never created or recreated to live without his constant power and help. And that's really one of the first keys of understanding this in parenting, when we really grasp what the task is. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That there is the mission of the church. Right? There's what God has called his people on earth to go do. And I think parenting, just like most other things we do, fits under sort of that umbrella. Falls into the category of the Great Commission, which is a category of impossible missions. It's a venture of evangelism and discipleship in a thousand forms in daily life. It depends on God's grace. And so when we think about that, what parenting is fundamentally about, how big it is, how weighty it is, how impossible it is, I think that starts to expose something in our hearts, which is where I want us to start. That parenting usually begins by exposing what's really in us, who we really lean on, what we really trust in. Our hearts are exposed in parenting. This is the first section we'll talk about. We'll start by talking about what are examples of just fleshly responses to the weight of parenting? Just how just the flesh tends to get exposed. I think one is to minimize it, to pretend the mission is not so great, to reduce it just to providing meals, just providing clothing, shelter, education, or just mere behavior modification. Now, parenting is certainly providing meals, providing shelter, addressing behavior, but that's not all it is. And certainly we feel that weight of provision. But there's just so much more because our kids aren't just bodies. The next generation isn't just bodies. They're souls. Reading this really discouraging article a couple weeks ago on just some of the new technology and determining in the womb whether or not a child is going to be handicapped whether through Down syndrome, something like that, and how much better equipped we are now to decide whether or not to carry children to term. And the argument is because we wouldn't want to bring a kid into the world, right, who can't walk. We wouldn't want to bring a child into the world whose mental capacities aren't going to sort of fit what society says are the right amount of mental capacities, who aren't going to be able. In all of it, you read, it's built on this idea that kids are just bodies, not, again, some of it's just not understanding, okay, when God knits together in a mother's womb and then breathes life into a child in the womb and gives them a spirit and they become a, a being in his image and that nature's not all there is. And so, okay, should a child be brought into the world that has limited physical capacities? And the answer is, of course, because it's not, they're not just bodies. They're souls, they're in the image of God. And so we can minimize it in a way where we just reduce it to the physical stuff. 
or to merely external performance and behavior? Or how do we just get kids to behave properly? Another way we'll get exposed in parenting is with the anxiety and the panic that sets in when we realize how big it is. And we get fearful and we start worrying. We start panicking about how great the task is. I remember when we're sitting there, and yeah, and Ruth and I, Gabe was born, our oldest, and then the day comes when we're gonna leave the hospital, and they come in, they swaddle him, they sort of put it, they help put him in the car seat, and then hand, and then they hold him out to me. And that's when it dawned on me, oh wait, we take them home. Like there's, we're meant to do something after this. And I remember my heart sort of rate went up. Like reality starts to set in. Well, that can apply to, to every area of parenting where we just get fearful, worried, anxious. I think anger is another thing that gets exposed in parenting. Just when we realize just, yeah, you're raising little sinners, but also just raising people that don't do it all the way you want them to do it. That don't necessarily act the way you want them to act in public. And you, a lot of times, like the grocery store trips when your kids are small, right? You just vacillate between anxiety and anger. And there's a temptation, I think, to live in fear of our own kids because you never know, okay, when, when are they going to melt down in the grocery store? When are they going to start screaming in public? When are they going to start? And how tempting it is to vacillate between those extremes of, okay, anxious and worried to do anything, especially in a climate and a culture that seems to be even intensely judgmental of parents who actually parent, who discipline, who sort of address things with their kids. But also the fear of just, yeah, anger, bitterness, blowing up. Those things will be exposed. And it's tempting to think, okay, I didn't have a problem with anger until I had kids. And really, it's, I didn't see my problem with anger until I had kids. That's how we ought to think about, again, in keeping with what we've been talking about with matters of the heart. It's circumstances don't cause, they expose. And so parenting is heat that causes what's inside to bubble out. And so you'll see anger in your life in ways you've never seen it. You'll see anxiety in your life in ways you've never seen it before when God starts giving kids, puts kids into your world. I think control is another fleshly response that gets exposed in parenting. We just want to conquer the troubles on our own. We're going to read every single book available. We're going to develop a behavior chart. We're going to, am I on? Yeah. We're going to do whatever it takes just to control everything that they think, feel, and do. We're going to reduce parenting to something that we can tangibly get our hands on. That's tempting because when you really get beneath the behavior and into heart stuff, you realize, okay, this is a deep ocean. Blame gets exposed in parenting, whether we blame God or blame spouse or blame our children. When things go wrong, when things aren't unfolding the way we want it to unfold, when we get embarrassed in public or humiliated or whatever it might be, we look for somebody to blame. Whose fault is this? Despair is a temptation where we just give up. We feel, what's the point? No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how I love or care, they, they're not responsive, they're not obedient, they're not respectful. Or just the years go on and you don't see the kind of fruit, the kind of results that you're hoping on or they get into adolescence or into adulthood and things, wheels start to come off. Their life starts to go in a direction and your temptation is to despair, to feel hopeless. Complaining gets exposed in parenting. That's a fleshly response that mostly to ourselves but often even to others that will grumble, will complain about these kids that we've been given or complain about the task that's involved or the difficulty of it or the weight of it. We'll medicate with the world. We'll medicate with television, with food, with drink, with narcotics. We'll just try to numb it. Those are all gonna be temptations. 
You may feel like, wow, I never desired to watch this much TV until I had kids. Or I never desired to run to this many sort of things in the world. And again, it's not because this is the cause, but it exposes. This is where I run when things get hard, when things get difficult, when I get tired. Because, yeah, you'll face levels of fatigue in parenting that you never knew possible. Like levels of sleeplessness, levels of being emotionally drained. And when you get exhausted and tired and strained and like, that's where stuff just starts coming out. It is actually, it's a mercy of God that there aren't more like, you know, sleep loss induced due to parenting car accidents or like, I just remember some of those early nights, you bring a newborn home and depending on that newborn and they're not, or if it's third kid, fourth kid, and you've got a newborn and a two-year-old and the two-year-old slept great the night before. They're up, ready to go. You didn't. And for me, it always, you know, fatigue always showed up by, I would misjudge like door jams and doors by about six inches. <laughs> and so Ruth would chuckle because every time I'd walk into a room, my shoulder would hit the door jam. So whatever, whatever form, so I would just, I lived for all this time with just bruises on my shoulders. And I remember thinking, am I safe to drive? Like, am I safe to operate machinery at this point? Just the fatigue of, you know, having babies and children and being up through the night and then up during the day. And so we just even see that and go, okay, what, how do we respond to that kind of fatigue, that kind of exhaustion, that kind of strain? Escape into work, into cleaning, into fantasy, into dreaming about the day that parenting will end. Like sometimes that'll be the case. You're just counting down the years. As Bill Cosby used to call the master plan of parenting was to get them out. <laughs> That's how he saw it was to graduate them, not to bring them back with more. But sometimes that's how you'll try to deal with it. That's the fleshly response that might come out of just, okay, when's this going to end? And it sort of has in view that, okay, we're just going to put in these hard years of sacrifice, of serving, of pouring self out for another and then they're going to leave the home and we're going to do what? Just sit around, relax. And I'd like to say, and basically flush down the toilet 30 years of good sanctification that happened. And so we just have to ask ourselves, what does God intend to do with us when that season maybe comes to a close? Might it be to, for us to keep being poured out, to keep sacrificing, to even more deeply be given over to the love of others? And so sometimes we have this, we'll, we'll comfort ourselves with that fantasy that, okay, just we'll do this, we'll get to the end, and then life will be easy. When, when has God ever operated that way with his children? Yeah, listen, I just want you to put in a good solid 30 years here and then just hit cruise control and have 15 years for you. Or is there going to be something else he's going to call you to? Something else. And I've even seen it with you know, those who have raised kids, their kids have gone out, married, had kids. Something happens where now they're raising grandchildren. And for some, it makes sense. It's a delight. It, and for others, it crashes down their dreams of how they're going to spend their last 15 years. And it's discouraging and despairing and angering. And all these fleshly things start to come out like this is not what I intended to use these years doing. Raising more kids. So what do we escape into? What gets exposed? Or just circumstantial prayers for the Lord just to fix it? For the Lord just to make it easy? For the Lord to just remove whatever the burdens may be? And we don't realize that God's using that parenting not just to expose us, but to teach us, to train us. To show us, okay, what's inside us? What do we live for? Who do we trust? Where do we run? And so it takes a heart that loves God, is learning to love God, that loves our children to care enough about their spiritual welfare that we would see that what God's called us to do is to expend ourselves for their spiritual good. It takes a heart that trusts God, that loves our children to realize and apply the truth that we actually don't control the spiritual condition or outcome of our children. 
that we're just planting seeds and watering them. But it's God who has to cause the growth. And so we can fall into the ditch on one hand of apathy. We're just, you know, you know, who cares what happens? Or we can fall into the other ditch of sovereignty. Like, I must make this work. And what the gospel calls us to is an entirely different road. We're neither apathetic about parenting nor sovereign in our parenting. We're not throwing off every responsibility, like I don't care, nor are we taking on every responsibility like it's all us. It depends on us. So it would be examples of spirit-enabled responses to this weight of parenting. I think firstly, just fervent, constant prayer. When we really get it, what's at stake? How difficult this is? What it means to make disciples? What it means to care for the souls of our children, what it means to not just provide for the outside, but to speak into the inside, we realize, all right, Lord, you, you have to do this. You have to help in this. Your hand has to strengthen this, guide this. Just fervent prayer. I think daily feeding on God's word, but not as an academic exercise, but as food as nourishment, as life-giving, as water to a thirsty soul, as the wisdom of God that we need inside us so that when parenting starts to squeeze us, his words come out, not our words come out. So we start even to see, hopefully, God's word, not just as this academic exercise that we check off, not as this hoop that we jump through, but as food for the soul, water for the soul, nourishment, wisdom, the very revelation of God. I think we seek help from the church for prayer, for counsel, for, yeah, just getting in there with, with each other as parents to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to strengthen each other. That You've probably heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. But in some ways, it takes a church to raise a saint. It takes a church to pray for each other's kids and to encourage each other in those things and to... You know, there's a day where, at least in my parents' generation, I think there was some kind of understanding that everybody was allowed to correct anybody's kids anytime. I don't know if any of you grew up in that world. But it's like every adult in my world had, like, permission, anytime they needed to, to correct me, chasten me, discipline me, teach me, instruct me. And there's a way in which, within the church, there needs to be a love for each other, but also a care for one another's kids, that we're, we are praying for each other and speaking truth and love to one another and sort of inviting other adults in. Be humbled by our lack of control. I think that's one, it's not meant to make us despairing or angry or anxious or worried, but to be humble. Like, wow, Lord, I... I really don't have control of this. I can, by your grace, speak truth and love. I can train in the Lord. I can discipline. I can encourage. I can do all these things, but Lord, whatever's going to happen in the heart, like I can't control that. And that can humble us. To trust the Lord with the outcomes. I think persevering in faith is another spirit-enabled response. Perseverance, it's, it's long work. I mean, you just think of even farming. We've used that illustration a number of times this semester, but you, if you're a farmer, like you till the soil, you plant seed, you water, and you go out day after day, you're not gonna see growth. And then as the months go on, as the week goes on, you're gonna start to see things sprout up out of the ground. And that's just physical stuff. How much more spiritual things? Do we sow seeds? Do we water? And you may not see the outcome. Maybe for years and years and years, maybe decades of what God's going to do. And so just perseverance in faith is one of the things we're called to do as parents, that we just keep speaking truth and love. We just keep laboring and ministering. Perseverance and obedience as parents. You know, Paul's going to say to Timothy, preach the word in season and out. What he means is when it's bearing fruit and when it isn't. Preach the word. 
Because what false teachers will do is they'll trim their sails to the times. They'll maybe preach the word when they see all the results. If it doesn't, they'll change tack and go, okay, now we got to find out a new way to hook everybody, a new way to get the results we want, a new way to, and Paul's saying to Timothy, don't do that. You be faithful to the word. You teach it, you preach it, whether you see the results or not. That's not up to you. You persevere in what God has called you to. And parenting is so much of that. There are days where you might see fruit. Other days where you don't. Years where you'll see fruit. Other years where you don't. And God's not in heaven scratching his head going, why isn't this working? And sometimes he'll even allow that to test our perseverance in faith. He'll lead us into seasons where you won't see fruit. You won't see the results you want. Just to even ask you the question, do you still trust me? You still believe what I said? Are you still willing to hold fast to this faithful word? Learn to love, teach, and guide our children all the more. I think that's one spirit-enabled response is that we grow as parents. Like there is learning. So it isn't that we read every book on parenting, but feel free to read something. Good ones. It isn't that we okay, lean on some behavior program, or, but we can grow and learn in how to talk to our children, how to discipline our children, how to teach our children, how to encourage our children. We can learn from each other. And so in some ways, the weight of parenting is meant to push us to want to learn, to want to grow, to want to understand better how do we care well for them. I think another spirit-enabled response is just to boast in Christ and his work where we just realize that anything that really is good that's going to come of it is going to be of his doing. That we're instruments in his hands. And so it can move us to boast all the more in Christ, to be confident in him, to hope in him, rather than boasting in our parenting righteousness. So there's a danger in every church community of sort of grading marriages, grading parents, and we'll look and go, oh, that's a great marriage. And I really try to push back on that and almost want to say, okay, how do you know? Number one. Number two, what do we mean? Because if Hosea and Gomer were to show up and come in and sit down and we were to get to know Hosea and Gomer, they were to share their testimony about, yeah, they married and then Gomer ran off with another guy and probably had a kid. And so in Hosea, God told Hosea, go, go take her back, brought her back. She left again, had another affair, probably had another child of that relationship. Hosea went and got her, brought her back. How many of you are going to go, wow, that's a great marriage? But what if you ask God, is that a good marriage? I think you go, yeah. Really, why? It does precisely what I intended to. It serves the purpose for which I designed that marriage. It tells the story about my relationship to my people. It does what I want it to do. And most of us don't have that category, right? Same with parents. We'll grade it based on, now there's such thing as wise parenting. There's such thing as faithful parenting. There's such thing as foolish parenting. There are those things, but I'm just not, I don't trust myself to be the judge of it all. I don't, meaning I don't trust myself in, okay, what exactly is God doing with this person in this world with these kids? Or most importantly, we'll judge it by the outcomes of children. Look at how this child turned out. Look at how they're acting. Look at how, is that the measure? So are we meant to look at Samson's life and go, man, he must have had bad parents. Or did he have very faithful parents, very wise parents, very godly parents, but God had something in mind for Samson. And it was going to look disastrous, full of immorality, full of rage and anger, full of violence. It's going to end badly. But yet God fulfilled his purposes in delivering his people through Samson as judge, as messy as it all looked. And so we have to be careful about boasting in parenting righteousness, however we measure it. And instead keep boasting in the cross.
We can praise God for his grace. That's one spirit-enabled response to the weight of parenting. We can thank God for his mercy. He really does help. He really does strengthen. He really does bear fruit through our faith in him and our trust in him. We can long for heaven, not as a mere escape, but as the consummation of God's plan for our work. We can long for our children to be in heaven. We can pray for God to redeem them and save them because of his grace, not their merit. We can repent when we blow it. Praise God for the gospel, right? That parenting is one long road of repentance, I've found. It's just there's not many weeks go by where I don't have to say to at least one of the kids, please forgive me for I spoke to you here, how I handled this, how I related to you in this, how I dealt with this. Or inviting them to repent. Or forgiving others. Or asking them for forgiveness. And so one spirit-enabled response to the, to the weight of parenting, to the troubles of parenting, to the hardships of parenting is just a heart of repentance, of forgiveness of others. So a day in the life of a parent, it's filled with many conversations and activities. The tasks never seem to end. There's feeding and housing and clothing of our children. We try to provide basic education. We give opportunities for them to learn responsibility where much of it's transporting kids from point A to point B bringing them to the gathering of the church, getting together with friends, coaching their sport teams, encouraging their friendships. And yet in it all, there's the awareness that, okay, God in his grace and his mercy has to work on the heart. And our heart needs to be his in the process, which brings us to this next section of our hearts now expressed in parenting. First, they get exposed. Now they're to be expressed I think from one point of view, parenting is fundamentally about representing the Lord Jesus Christ to our children. That's one thing it's about. Helping them come to know him as he is. Training them to live for his glory in the course of daily life. So it's one, representing the Lord Jesus Christ to our children. Reflecting him. Speaking of him. Representing him helping them know him in truth. We can't make them believe or trust, but we can present a portrait of who he is, speak of him in a way that is truthful, that is scriptural, to so much as to do with us, help them see him as he is. And then train them to live for his glory in the course of life, teaching, correcting, encouraging, exhorting, reproving, all the things that go into the training to to love him, to follow him. It doesn't mean you can make their heart do it. It just means, okay, we do our part. And so it's actually really simple at that level of explanation, really hard, but really simple. When you get into the details of how it happens on any given home on any given day, it can be pretty creative and distinctive and sometimes complicated. But there really is no magic formula. No silver bullet, right? That's why we keep buying the books. Okay, maybe this one has it. Maybe their seven steps to great kids are the right seven steps. We're always looking for what's that magic bullet? What's that button we could hit? We just dial it in. So number one, we speak of the Lord to our children. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 78. Look at verses five through eight. Psalm 78, where it says, He that is God established a testimony in Jacob, verse 5, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So there's just so there's God said, okay, I called you as one generation to teach the next generation about who I am, about the great works that I've done, 
so that they, by God's grace, would put their hope in God and not be like previous generations that forgot God. You read the book of Judges, and what does it say? A generation arose who what? Did not know the Lord or what he'd done for Israel. And God's putting that at the feet of the generation that didn't do it, that didn't teach. He's not saying that he failed to act or do anything, but rather this whole generation just decided to stop talking about God. Such as the whole generation came up and just didn't know him, didn't know what he'd done. Because Psalm 78 really is just an application of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, as God redeems Israel from Egypt, brings them into the wilderness, and in Deuteronomy 6, through Moses, is going to say, Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. So there's the first step for us as parents. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your mind, all your strength, everything, God's word, put it in your heart. Believe it in your heart. Delight it in your heart so that, verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And just that, in other words, you see how it's not complicated. Just talk of God. Speak about God. Say true things about God. Yeah, Ruth even was reading this week an article where apparently they found more galaxies, right, every year. Oh, we thought it was a star. Oh, no, it's a billion stars. And so now we're up to, what was it, three billion galaxies? Something like, or three million, hundred million, something like that, maybe 300 million galaxies, and they keep saying there are 300 million galaxies out there. And I want to say, always end it with, that we know of. Because next year, you'll get new technology and you'll find more. It's like the more the technology advances, the more we ought to be humbled. Because the more we see how much more there is than we thought. And it's as if, when do we ever think that's going to stop? Every year, it's like we convince ourselves we got to the bottom of it. No, no, this is just as far as we've been able to see at this point. And God is allowing us to have the technology to see, oh wow, so we're on this planet, inside this solar system, inside this one galaxy, just on this one little arm of this one galaxy, and there's 300 million more of those that we know about. Or you take a microscope and you start looking at a cellular level, right? And people keep being amazed that we start looking more and more able to magnify a cell, and there's even more in there than we thought. We just never seem to quite get to it all. Well, that's a moment where you're reading that and just you can say, hey, kids, behold the glory of God. Like, behold the greatness of God. Like, look at this leaf. You know, look at this tree and all these leaves on all these branches. Look at the intricacy. God made that with his words. Like, he sustains it with his words. Hey, look at that dead tree right there. You know why that's dead? Because God decided. Just withdrew life. And it's going to wither right there. It's like Jesus, you know, when he cursed the fig tree, just withered up. And so in all of life, there's opportunities just to connect the dots. In all of creation, it displays the glory of God and his works. So there's the teaching of God's word. There's, and it may just be sitting down at the dinner table and just reading the Bible. You don't have to get fancy with it. Just read a chapter. Talk about one or two things. And you do that one, two, three, four, five days a week, seven days a week, whatever it might be, or when you're driving around and seeing the glory of God and connecting that with your kids, that's what he's talking about. When you sit down, when you stand up, when you go by, have it pinned to your forehead so that, again, when your kids are listening to you and seeing you, they're seeing you live. You know what godly literally means? Godly means Godward. That's actually one way to translate the word. That we would live Godward lives, conscious of him always, revolving around him always, thinking about him always. So one of the first gifts that we give our kids is living Godward lives, helping them see the Godwardness of life, the God who created all things, sustains all things, is glorified by what he's made. We proclaim the gospel to our children 
This is where it gets more specific. Because the Lord could save people in whatever way that he deems best, but he's decided to accomplish the salvation of his people through the faithful proclaiming of the gospel. Through talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Through talking about our creation, our fall, and how God intervened through the personal work of Jesus Christ to forgive our sins to atone for our sin, to reconcile us to God, all those who would repent and believe and trust in him. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, that's that and many other verses like it. That's what we're trying to announce and proclaim and share with our kids. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every genuinely repentant, trusting in Jesus person who calls on him to be forgiven, calls on him to be redeemer, calls on him as Savior and Lord will will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So yeah, that's for preachers, pastors, elders, teachers, evangelists. It's also for parents. How are they going to believe on someone they've never heard of? How are they going to trust in a message that's never been proclaimed or shared with them? And so yes, we're going to speak of the Lord to our kids. We're going to speak of his works, but we're also going to speak specifically about the gospel of Christ and their need for believing it, trusting it. We teach our children faithfulness to the Lord. Whether our kids demonstrate faith in Christ or not, the Lord still calls us to teach them and train them in a way that conforms to the truths of Scripture. Everybody is accountable to God. Sometimes it's like we forget it. Now, nobody can trust, repent, believe, follow Jesus if they don't have a regenerate heart. But every single human being on earth is still accountable to God. Every single person on earth is still called to obey him, to worship him, and can be taught accordingly. And so whether our kids are regenerate or not regenerate, we teach them not to lie because God says, don't lie. We teach them not to commit murder, whether in the heart or outside the heart, because God says, don't murder. We teach them sexual purity. We're going to teach them how to love and serve others. So we don't wait for regeneration to happen to teach the way of the Lord. So Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger just by pounding them, riding them, just giving rules without relationship or guidelines without grace or faithfulness, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. From early, bring them up in it. And what God's word teaches and what God's word said and who God is and what he asks, what he requires. In other words, the law is still helpful. And the law really is firstly for an unregenerate person. A law is meant to sort of show need for grace and forgiveness. To show and reveal God in all his holiness and perfection. There is a moral fiber to the universe that he has made. The Proverbs really are for everybody. Because there's principles of the Proverbs that are there that are just true to life. They're not always guarantees. They're not always, this is exactly how it'll happen every time. But the wisdom of the Proverbs, are, are, these are true principles for life. That, that's why Solomon is going to begin some of those chapters with, Hear, O son, my teaching. Listen to the wisdom of your mother. And he's going to appeal on the grounds with, so that it will be well in your life. So that you will follow wisdom and not folly. So part of making disciples of our children is teaching them how to love God, how to follow Christ, and the practical details of life, knowing that it depends entirely upon grace that they're born again, entirely upon grace that that those seeds you're planting actually take root and bear real fruit in heart and life that isn't just external. It depends on his wisdom, his strength. We aim at the heart. Number four there, as we've talked about over these last few months, that the heart is the wellspring of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Solomon is saying that to his son. 
Keep your heart, son. With all diligence, guard it by God's grace because from your heart, it's the wellspring of life. It's gonna touch everything else. The Lord wants the heart, Psalm 50. Zechariah 7, 5 and 6. Psalm 51, 6. You know, all through scripture it shows us God wants the heart, not just the behavior. When we talk about the heart being the target, we don't mean that behavior doesn't matter, only that behavior is the tip of the iceberg. The sort of outside tantrum, the outside act of dishonesty, the outside act of immorality, the outside act of disrespect is actually an expression of something going on inside, something that is needed in the heart. And I would say the older your kids get, this is one of the ways in which parenting changes as kids get into adolescent years, as kids get into uh, late adolescent years, is it shifts more and more from just addressing behavior to more and more addressing heart. And less and less are we trying to just control outside behavior. So then even as kids begin to sort of hit, I think 16, 17, 18, getting ready to leave, sort of some of the external controls start to loosen, should loosen. Because we're saying, okay, let's, you need to have opportunity here for, for you to decide in your heart who you're going to follow, who you're going to serve, what you're going to love. And so our goal for parenting isn't just to make it look pretty, but for your heart to be captivated by Christ. For you, when it's just you and God alone in a room, do you know he's there? Do you care about what he sees, what he thinks, what pleases him? Are you crying out to him for help and mercy? We mean that our primary concern is the condition of the souls of our children in the midst of our daily interactions and activities. That that's our primary concern. And that's really hard to do, right? Because we are all about appearances. We're all about how does this look to us? How does this look to everybody else? There's a part of us that thinks just so long as the cake looks good on the outside, we don't care if the inside is like trash. That's tempting. But then we, it's almost like we don't really want to cut into it though. It's like there's something about when you start cutting and getting into the inside of the cake, then you realize, okay, Lord, this is harder than we thought. Uglier than we thought. Which is just true, not just of our kids, but of us. And so part of what the gospel enables us to do, calls us to do, God's word helps us to do, is not just sort of dress up the outside, but aim at the heart, speak to the heart, ask God to do something at the level of the heart. The heart is the primary target of our parenting because that is the part of our children the Lord wants first and foremost. Because nobody cares less about appearances than God, right? And that should be really relieving to us in life, really freeing, actually, as parents. In a way, he, he doesn't care about how it all looks to society. Yeah, he cares about the image, the reputation of Christ, but I think sometimes we take that way too far to mean you've got to perform to make God look good in the world. When really, it's, okay, how do we live repentantly, humbly, dependently upon him, knowing that it's actually the inside that he's after, if he has the hearts of our kids, he will get their bodies as well. If he has their hearts, he will get their time, he will get their money, he will get their possessions, he will get their devotion, he will get their relationships, he'll get everything. And if our children learn to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, then everything else that matters will follow with time. And sometimes that's in their 30s or 40s or 50s or fill in the blank. Like we don't know when that's gonna take root. I don't know about you, but you know, I didn't like leave my house just mature. I was a disaster in college and spent a decade after that learning what does it mean to actually love God, follow God, be given over to God. And so in some ways, my own parents didn't get to witness the fruit. They got to hear about it later about the things that God was doing and bringing about and Often the Lord reproves his people for doing the right things with the wrong heart motivation. Psalm 50, 7 through 15, Zechariah 7. 
where they're coming back from exile saying, hey, Lord, do you still want us to fast as we did these 70 years in exile? And the Lord's like, was it for me you fasted? He's like, you mean, should you keep doing what you're doing there? No, thanks. You didn't fast for me. That was for you. <laughs> and he's calling attention to the fact that your heart was never in it. Like, and so, yeah, I'm not interested in that. You, were, you, were, you convinced yourself that it was pleasing. Like, there's those kinds of statements throughout the Bible where it's just so clear that, you know, like it's the, the immoral woman that is weeping at Jesus' feet. And then there's all these well-put-together Pharisees sitting around him, judging her and judging him. And there's only one person in the room God's going to say, daughter, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, Jesus is going, this is what I want. <laughs> this is how you come to me. Not this. You all look good and you're in trouble. Everybody thinks you're on top of things, and, but I know. That's why C.S. Lewis says, you know, it's, he said, I assure you a self-righteous prig who sits every Sunday in a church service is far nearer to hell than a prostitute. And he said, of course, it's better to be neither. <laughs> Which is a great statement. He's like, yeah, better to be neither, but don't go thinking for one minute that just sitting self-righteously in church every Sunday, you're near to heaven. You might be near to hell because there's nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness. And so it's the tax collector beating his breast in the marketplace who doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven saying, Father, forgive me, the sinner. And then the Pharisee nearby going, Lord, I thank you that you haven't made me like other men like this tax collector. You've made me so spiritually great. Jesus is like, I tell you, he went away justified, the first guy, who's just beating his breast saying, Father, forgive me, the sinner. But yet, to everybody looking from the outside, who looked closer to God? Who played more the part? This is what I mean by we have to be very careful with appearances, very careful as parents thinking that if it just looks good, then it is good. When some of the greatest work that God does is through the mess, through the disaster. Because you know Saul of Tarsus I mean, we don't know all the inside scoop or the details, but I would think his parents were pretty pleased with how he had turned out. The nation was certainly pleased. He was the rising star in Israel, like studying under Gamaliel, like Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, the, the resume he had, the religious profile he had online, like his LinkedIn profile was dynamite. Everybody wanted him to come speak at their conferences and and his parents were thought, yeah, we did good. Look at this. But on the road to Damascus, God's going to have to humble him and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love the question, who are you, Lord? Like, I have no idea who this is. Well, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. We don't know each other. Not till now. And now life's about to get really hard. Now it's about to get really messy. And now you're about to suffer for my name's sake. And from that day on, everybody else thought he was a disaster and a betrayer and unfaithful and wanted to kill him. And yet God's like, now we're on the right track. When everything starts to circumstantially, externally fall apart. This is what I mean. We, gotta, we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he's going to mold, shape, guide the lives of our children. We're, we're instruments in it, speaking the truth and love in it being faithful to God by his mercy in it, and then he's going to decide how that story is going to unfold. And so we aim at the heart. We trust him with the circumstances. You think of James 4, verse 1. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? This is part of what it means to aim at the heart. Is it not your desires your passions that wage war in your members. So how tempting is it? You walk into the room, your kids are fighting, and that's when we go to what I call stop it theology, which is stop it. Just don't, don't do that anymore. You quit. But she doesn't, I don't care. I don't care who started it. I don't care who was next. I don't care what it's about. Just cut it out. Like there's just those moments where that's, there's my parenting. A lot of those moments. 
And yet here James is saying, okay, there's something going on beneath it in the heart. That's why this is happening. There, there are, and so it's very different to enter the room and say, okay, what are you desiring so strongly that you're willing to sin to get it? What are you desiring so strongly that you're willing to sin if you don't get it? What are your passions that are at war in you right now that you would actually go to war with your brother? Or your, that's a very different kind of question, a very different direction to go. But why do we not do that? Why do we not ask those questions? Why are we tempted to not go there? I think number one, that's gonna take some time. Like you're entering in now to a car that isn't like stop at theology is so efficient. And then they look at me silently when it's over and I go, all right, they got it, we're done. I walk out, case closed. As if God is going, yeah, that got to it. And again, that's where we'll, we'll go to the appearances. Okay, it looked like this, when, when the heart isn't even addressed, isn't spoken about. Okay, what, what's the desire, the passions, the pride, the self that's going on in that, because the first reason, okay, that's time consuming. The second is, once you get into that, you realize, okay, I don't actually have a way to control that part. I can shut it all down and make it stop. But I can't change what they desire. But then that's where we have to realize God isn't asking you to. He's asking you to point to it, to show it, to show their need for God's grace in it, to help them see what the real problem is, what's underneath it. And what God isn't after is actually just cleaning up the outside, but the inside being transformed. And then in parenting, you're just having those conversations month after month, year after year, for years. Praying that the gospel would truly do its work on the inside. Colossians 3, 1 through 5, we realize that, okay, sexual immorality is not firstly a body problem, it's an idolatry problem. It's a heart problem. And so that chastity ring won't actually change what you worship. You know, just having some club that, again, may help on the outside a virginity club or a vow of chastity to marriage club, but yet, what's getting at the heart? on the inside, what's changing the heart? And we begin to realize, again, that's a whole different kind of conversation. Where we talk about, okay, the sexual purity, sexual morality is actually firstly about heart worship, not just behavior with the body. And so it's tempting to think, okay, because we've gotten our kids through life and out of the house pure, that they're pure. Or that it's, God has happening in the heart what he wants. Whereas heart focus all along is calling attention constantly to, okay, outside behavior is symptom, not root. What God is after is the heart, to not even lust after anybody. And we start thinking about it in those terms, we're like, oh, this is harder than we thought, deeper than we thought, needs God's grace more than we thought. Yeah, teaching dependence upon Christ, not independence and self-sufficiency. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, just that story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit. We realize, okay, eating that forbidden fruit was not actually driven by physical hunger, but by desire for independence from God, desire to be self-sufficient, desire to be like God without God. And so sometimes we'll sort of think, okay, the problem is material, it's physical, it's, okay, it wasn't a hunger issue. There was a different war going on that Satan was tempting them. And so one of the things we go, okay, part of the heart being the target is we're gonna actually get after self-sufficiency and independence, not just external, sort of what you eat or don't eat. Yeah, there's other passages I'd love to jump into, but we can't. Number five, we believe the spirit regenerates and the gospel redeems the heart. But praise God, he doesn't just desire the heart, he really does actually redeem the heart. The law was not given as a means for God's people to achieve an external righteousness of their own, but as a mirror to reveal the dreadful condition of their souls, the holiness of God, and their need for Christ. And so that's how we're meant to use the law in parenting. Use the law, use commandments, use instructions, use correction. But we're always meant to come back to, okay, do you realize though, this is simply revealing your condition spiritually, revealing the holiness of God, revealing your need for a savior, your need for a redeemer, your need for Jesus. 
that you need to call upon and trust in and hope in. And so we never want to use the law in parenting as a means that they can achieve some righteousness of their own. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is what our children need more than anything. And just that yeah, scene in Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones where God was like, yeah, speak to the bones. That they're going to stand up and come together and tissue and ligaments and all that come. And then, and then life actually breathed into them. Like he's using that as a picture of this is the state of an unregenerate nation. This is the state of an unregenerate people. It's dead bones. How are you going to tell them to live? So we realize, okay, we need God's spirit to do all that work. And so that's what we're praying for. The power for lasting change comes from the gospel, not our parenting strategies. Do we realize that? It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, not your technique. Not you having all the perfect words. You've probably seen it in evangelism. I know I have. Like There have been moments where I've shared the gospel with somebody and I'm like, that might be one of the clearest, best explanations of the gospel that's ever been given. And then they mock and they laugh and they say it's the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Other conversations where I'm like, I get to the end of what I've shared and I'm like, they might be Mormon when this is over. That was disastrous. And they repent and trust in Christ. And it's like just God making the point, just be faithful, share, but your technique, how great you are in it, how smooth you were, how clear your transitions were, how great the illustrations, that's not what actually regenerates hearts or transforms lives. It doesn't mean be, just be sloppy and don't care. No, try to be faithful, try to be clear, try to, of course, be biblical, but it just means, okay, he's the decisive factor. Which is why then, point C there, we trust the Lord with our children. The Lord will decide the outcome of that training, but we are to obey what he commands us to be and to do as parents. Which I think might be one of the most difficult parts of the parenting task is to entrust the souls and lives of our children to the Lord. Entrust him with the outcome, with what he will do. Yeah, you read Judges 13 in the story of Samson, you really do get the sense that Manoah and his wife were faithful as parents. From the conception of Samson in her womb to the birth of Samson, it was all a clear gift of God. And they were focused upon training him in the way that the Lord instructed, raising him as a Nazarite, raising him in the scriptures. And yet, according to the providence and the purposes of God, his life was not pretty. The immorality, the anger, the violence, all the things that were there. And yet God glorified himself. God honored himself. God brought about his purposes through his life. But if you're sitting on the bleachers as his parents watching this thing unfold, it does not look good to you. You're probably asking yourself, okay, what did we do? What did we miss? What did we not? I think God would comfort him and say, no, you, you were faithful to what I called you to be. This is what I've intended to use him this way. Or you take Samuel as another example who was surrendered to the Lord by Hannah to serve under Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And you read the story and you go, okay, the household of Eli does not seem to be a great place to grow up as a kid who needs to learn reverence for the Lord. Like Eli was not a great dad, not a model father. His sons were immoral, violent, godless, irreverent men. That's who Samuel grew up around. That's what Samuel grew up in. And yet God set him apart. God, in other means, in different ways, taught him, trained him, grew him to be you know, faithful to him. And so, yeah, we're to be faithful. We're to be obedient. We're to, again, with all the strength that God gives, all the grace he gives to love and speak truth and love with our kids and train them in the way of the Lord. And then God is the decisive factor in what he does to their hearts. Got a few minutes left for questions or comments or thoughts just before we close. Anything at all?
Goddamn. Yeah, just the idea that if parenting, the Lord will use it to do many things, and one thing he'll do is make us dependent, make us humble, expose things in us that need to be exposed, uh, teach us things that need to be taught, remind us constantly that salvation really is of the Lord. It really is his doing. It really is his work. And, you know, and that's why even by God's grace those of our children that will be with us in glory, and we get there, I would hope they're thankful, but it'll be, hey, mom, dad, thanks for the little bit you did. Um, I think that should be the best we get, the most we get, because they'll be seeing it really clearly that we were one of many means God used. We were probably some of the bigger means as parents, we hopefully are, not always, but hopefully. But then when we get there, hopefully it's, yeah, thank you for, for that little bit, that tiny contribution <laughs> that you made through and by God's grace, but they're going to see, wow, this, this was all God's doing. This was all his work. And that should be humbling for us, but also very freeing, I think. I think also very strengthening. So now, yeah, we plant and we water, but we know God causes growth. Now we proclaim the word in season and out, but we know that God causes growth. So there's something in it that's, that's hopefully focusing for us, clarifying for us, simplifying for us, but then also freeing, where we realize, okay, it, it is going to be of his mercy and grace. And hopefully that compels us to pray more, to beg for God's mercy more. Yeah. Well, let me pray for us now. Father, we do pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen us, sustain us, help us, make us wise in this beautiful task of just parenting and shepherding and caring for our children. We pray for each and every one of them that they would know the Lord, that they would turn from sin and look to Christ, that you would grab their hearts and regenerate them, that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would, for your reasons and in your way, accomplish your great purposes in and through their lives, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done through, yeah, the next generation of our children. And so we look to you, we rely upon you, we trust in you, we do repent of just the ways in which our own sin as parents has been clearly seen and exposed, but we throw ourselves upon Christ, upon his mercy, not upon our self-righteousness. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.